Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, sadly, folks, regular season is over. Uh, we still got the CUSA Championship game to talk about, as well as a host of other uh, CUSA news, notes, and uh, changes that we need to get to between the transfer portal and coaching changes and everything else that goes into making uh, college football offseason as entertaining as it can be. And then we've already got some bowl games lined up, as crazy as that seems. The regular season ended literally two days ago. Uh, but Eric, I'm excited to jump into this. And I don't know if you have this uh, when we get into the offseason, but like it seems like there's so much more like you know, external stimuli when it comes to like stuff to write about in the off season. Like my brain is like, feels like it's all over the place with how easy it is to like, you know, get bogged down during the season, which is following the routine that we follow. Yeah. It's very difficult to kind of transition from that routine of, all right, trying to keep track of every game players and stats and records and all those things that happen throughout the course of a season and then trying to switch to now it's like, huh? What, what do I what do I occupy my mind with? So no, I can definitely understand that uh, it, it is it's challenging when you know there's so much exertion energy focused into being uh, you know informed on everything that happens in the season. And now it's it's a weird spot. Totally, and we're getting into the point too where CUSA is changing in so many different ways. We're getting teams added. We're going to see some major uh, some major coaching changes coming up, and <laughs> it's weird the windfall from. Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC is still being filled in more ways than one. Uh, notably with uh, Lincoln Riley, you know, making a bolt to to the West Coast for that USC job. Uh, be, with, of course, the rumor being he was just really, you know, upset with the idea of Oklahoma playing in the SEC. And, you know, it's it's wild to think that Oklahoma really made that decision to switch conferences and really shake up the entire FBS landscape as a result. And like their coach didn't even want to go. I don't know. That seems like such a major oversight on on the fault of their administration. <laughs> but I mean, to bring it back to CUSA, like things are things are going to be very different in a couple of years here, and even you know in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, Joe. Joe, really quick. And listen, you're 100 right. Right. In terms of Conference USA, things over the next few years are going to be completely different. Talk about player turnover, and we're going to get into some of the transfers and guys already. I mean, Portal Monday, as we're taping this on Monday, eleven twenty nine. That's what I termed it on Twitter. I think that's going to be the thing for the foreseeable future, just like Black Friday is going to be Portal Monday. But really quick, John, the OU thing. I I hear what you're saying, but I think that was a situation where that move is made by people well above Lincoln Riley's head, and they'd been like, "Yo, all right, cool. You don't want to go? That's fine. We'll find someone else to coach this team who wants to coach in the SEC." And you know, it's still a a job that certainly holds plenty of cachet uh, um, prestige, but I, I do understand your point that it seems like, yeah, 
you didn't even consult with the dude who you had who was pretty successful as to whether or not he would want to go. But at the same point in time, we all know that was a money move and <laughs> that move was getting made. Whether or not Lincoln, that's cool. You don't want to be here. All right, go get another job. But, you know, we gone. I mean, I, I, I know it was a money thing, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I, I, you try to think like how much, how much success do you need to have as a coach before you get to like be involved in these conversations? And I feel like Lincoln Riley's done more with Oklahoma than a lot of FBS coaches get to do over the course of their entire careers. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's naive of me to think, but um, whatever. I mean, Lincoln Riley's got a free private jet now. So, and like a hundred <laughs> and what was it like? It's like a $95 million salary salary. Now line by line. I, oh, I, I just have this in my brain because I just read it recently. Uh, $95 million salary. They're buying him a $6 million house in LA. And yeah, 24-7 access to the university private jet, which is, hey, you know, benefits of like the biggest private school in, in like the richest part of the country or one of the richest parts of the country. To quote the great urban philosopher Young Jeezy, money talks like Charlie Sheen's. As simple as that. Yeah, and OJ Simpson approved, so you know it's a it's a wholesome move. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll probably All right. that out, see but. now you, now you're gonna get us down a rabbit hole. It's gonna take us another ten minutes to get to see USA. So we'll uh, we'll stop now. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you mentioned Black Friday. We had our first uh, CUSA game of the weekend uh, this past week uh, with UAB. Uh, beating UTEP 42 to 25 uh, regular season comes to an end for these two teams. UTEP was actually leading at the half in this game. Uh, Dwayne McBride injured his ankle. Uh, sounds like he'll be out for the bowl game as well. Uh, fortunately for UAB, they have an extremely deep rushing attack. So I think they'll be fine for that, but it's unfortunate. McBride has been playing really well. Uh, also of note, cool to see uh, Tyler Johnson, the third get uh, kind of a symbolic start by getting the first snap of this game before uh, immediately getting replaced by Dylan Hopkins, but uh, UAB, they finished with uh, eight wins here. So uh, not a bad season for Bill Clark, but obviously I know he wants to be uh, in that CUSA championship game again. Thank you for the advent of technology. I had to turn my mic off. So I've been laughing through Joe's entire read. Yo, dude, you got away with a crime and you just won't go away. Nevertheless, on to football. Um, <laughs> UAB, uh, first off, uh, okay, serious face here. No, I, I do agree with you that I, I um, in terms of Tyler Johnson III, that was a very nice move. And I think, Joe, that's part of the reason why people, and we just talked about Lincoln Riley and USC, and we'll get into some other coaching names, at least uh, in terms of Conference USA space, the new coaching names that we'll see during new realignment. And it's funny that Bill Clark's name I wonder, Joe, um, and, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the victory and start in speculation, but it's things like this that, Joe, don't you just – have you ever heard a bad thing about Bill Clark? You know what I mean? In terms of whether it's players who played for him or just ever since they've stayed with that rebuild, you don't hear anything bad about this guy, right? No, it's it, it's odd that you mentioned that, though, because – after their loss to UTSA the other day, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying he, he called a perfect game, but he called a pretty good game, uh, had one kind of tough decision towards the towards the end in regards to that punt there. But um, I was going to bring this up, too. Um, his wife actually posted on Facebook about how, like, I, I would have to pull up the exact quote. Thank you to the, the CUSA BBS uh, folks who actually DM'd that to me when I asked for it. Um but she posted something that was basically to the tune of they're getting some some flack, I guess. Uh, here's here's the exact quote that uh, his his wife, Jennifer Clark, posted on Facebook. 
as a coach's wife, you never really feel that you have a hometown because of moving so much. Over the last seven years, and all that my family has invested into Birmingham and all the love we felt from her citizens, I finally thought that I had a place to call home, and I mean it. After every season, schools would call inquiring about my husband, and I always reminded him that this place feels like home. It has broken my heart how this season, quote-unquote, fans have started to chip away at that. Now I feel it's just another city on our coaching journey. Oh, well, life of a coach's wife. Um, you never know and you never know what and where is next. At least it's always an adventure. Um, but that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think what Bill Clark's been able to do is extraordinary. And I don't think I've ever really heard anything about him from like a former player, but it's definitely taken a weird turn in the last like two weeks. Yeah. And I promise I'll, I'll, you know, come back to the game in a second, but I, and I did see that because um, that was posted on social media on various outlets. And yeah, I just think, Joe, that is part of the defense mechanism, part of the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, armor that you have to build up as a coach's wife. And the same thing can be said if you are a parent of a player, specifically a quarterback, right? Things are going to happen. And the only way that you can uh, survive those things is to build up a defense mechanism. So I'm not going to come down too hard on Mrs. Clark for that, you know, just because I, I, I don't know what is being said at UAB or what was said that, that you know, kind of um, spurred her to say that. But I don't read too much into it. And I'm not trying to dismiss her feelings. I just think that's just part of the armor that when you let that down and you feel like you're part of a community and then all of a sudden you start seeing that first little inkling of like, oh, well, I guess it's just business as usual. Posts like that happen. So I don't read too much into it in terms of, you know, my uh, POV. And quickly on the game, because, you know, we did get sidetracked, or at least I sidetracked the podcast as I normally do. It was nice to see Tyler Johnson get that first rep. The reason I brought it up again, it's just I, I think it just goes to show why players love playing for Bill Clark and you just don't hear anything but nothing but, you know, love and adoration in terms of uh, the job he's done at UAB and staying through the entire process. You talked about the fact that Dwayne McBride got banged up a little bit. Definitely interesting to see what his availability is. But they have and have always had, a really since Bill Clark brought or that program's come back, a deep backfield with Jermaine Brown, Lucia Stanley, getting a total of 220 yards and four touchdowns from the run game. What I, from the UTEP side of things, what I find interesting is, I am kind of curious, Joe, how this season will be viewed by minor fans. Listen, seven and five and four and four, again, that is a drastic increase from where this program has been playing football over the past really four or five years, half a decade. Is there part of it that feels like, okay, we got seven wins. What's next? I guess I just wonder in my mind how this season is going to be viewed because, again, you look at some of the early wins and they were against competition. That's when I left a lot to be desired. And then you look at some of the way that some of the losses they, they, they had down the stretch and you wonder to yourself, at least I'm wondering, are fans going to you know think, is it fool's gold or is it something you can really buy into? Because now that you have a seven win season, they'll qualify for a bowl. You're going to want that next step, right? So to me, in my mind, I'm wondering, is the next step beating a UAB, a UTSA, a premier team in the West? while taking care of business or is it conference tyler bust excuse me division tyler bust i'm sorry yeah i mean if you're talking about next year i think you have to be patient i mean i think when you're coming back from a hole as as deep as the utep football program found itself in i think you just kind of have to be patient and take progress in 
itty bitty chunks and be thankful that they made such a big leap. I was actually talking to somebody about uh, Oregon State uh, the other day who I feel like are, we're in a similar hole to UTEP, albeit for a shorter period of time. Um, but they just got to, uh, I think they just won eight games this season and were like right in line for the, the Pac-12 North um, until the last weekend here. But, you know, I mean, division, like they're in a highly competitive division within CUSA, which in and of itself is a pretty competitive league. Um, so, I mean, I, again, I think you just kind of have to take this season for the victory that it was and focus on not regressing. I think in time, if you allow Dana Dimmel to like continue to build on, on what he has and continue to like develop guys like Gavin Hardison and Wadley and, uh, and bring in more players who fit that kind of mold, um, then I think I think we'll be fine. I, I'm a big proponent of you have to let guys, well, you have to let coaches specifically, you have to allow them time to build the kind of program that will be successful unless there are other factors that show they just don't know what they're doing. And I think we've we've seen that scenario in, in CUSA a couple times um, over the past like five years or so. But with, with Dimmel, I think he's demonstrated that he has this program on the right track. And I think it, they just have to kind of like lean into not regressing now that they've gotten to the point where they, they have a winning season under the belt. No, I would completely agree with you there. Right. And that's kind of tough. It's funny. We talk about this all the time in terms of programs and we'll talk about FAU in a while. Um, we saw what a regression is, right, in terms of them competing for conference titles and now, you know, where they're at. So I think that's a fair point about UTEP. It doesn't necessarily matter who you beat. I guess that's left for, you know, interpretation, open to, open to interpretation. Um, but it, it can't be a regression back to the three, two, win, one win season. So that's a fair point. We'll go ahead and move on then to uh, Marshall and Western Kentucky. Uh, Western Kentucky wins this one 53 to 21, kind of a tale of two halves. In the first one, we saw Marshall control the ball and the clock to take a 14 to six lead into the half. Uh, but then in the third quarter, <laughs> Bailey Zappi woke up. Uh, the tops outscored Marshall 47 to seven in that second half. Uh, Zappi finishes this day with 328 yards and four touchdowns. So this means that WKU takes the East and that sets up a matchup with UTSA in the Alamo Dome later this week, which I think we're all very excited about with how evenly those two teams are matched. Yes, I will admit I did go on the podcast last week and say that Marshall would win. I had a feeling, but listen, the feeling that I should have had was just how much that offense, that Western Kentucky offense has been firing on all cylinders. And quite frankly, Joe, you've talked about it and I got to give you, you know, as, as the, as the kids say, Got to give you your flowers. I haven't seen very many people really opining and pushing Bailey Zappi as a Heisman candidate. And you've done that for a while now. And it's almost criminal how just underappreciated and underpublicized the season that he's having is. And it bothers me as a fan of college football as a whole, but especially someone who covers G5 football, because, and I think we talked about it last week, it just kind of plays up this divide between, you know, Power five football and group of five football. But nevertheless, in terms of the game, listen, uh, for Western Kentucky, like I mentioned, they've been riding a hell of a, a hot streak. Really, you know, in the early part of that season, they faced some tough opponent, but tough opponents and had to figure out some things in terms of uh, playing enough defense to win games to give their offense enough chances. And also in terms of the run game, 
they had to figure out ways that they were going to get enough of a Russian attack to extend uh, drives and, you know, produce those opportunities for Bailey Zappi, who broke the Conference USA record for most touchdown passes in a year. So congrats to Bailey Zappi and congrats to, you know, really the whole team. Tyson Helton, I wrote about it in my three things in Conference USA. This win, seven and five would have been nice, you know, it, considering it would have gotten a bowl game and been a return uh, to a winning season considering the way things went last year. But this is really the justification of making the entire offensive, the shift in offensive philosophy um, to Zach Kitley and Bailey Zappi. This win really justifies it. And listen, like you said, I, I think we're going to be in for a shootout. I think Western Kentucky is actually listed right now as a favorite against UTSA, which is a little surprising. Maybe prisoner of the moment, given you know what happened to the Roadrunners this week, but should be for an exciting game. Yeah, and you know I, I've spent plenty of time talking about Zappi and his Heisman campaign over the last few weeks. So I won't go too long on this, but the fact that he and the other Houston Baptist transfers and Zach Kitley have been so effective at Western Kentucky and have the stats to back up just how effective they've been. The fact that they're not getting more awards love and more Heisman love, I'm not surprised by it. If you remember in the uh, thing I wrote examining Bailey Zappi's uh, Heisman case on the site last week, I kind of pointed out that, uh, you know, just how rare it is for G5 players to be, uh, you know, in the running for Heisman finalists. There's only been a handful that have even finished in the top 10 in voting in the last uh, 20 or so years. And even pr and prior to 2000, it was even more rare. Um and I think there's like the last G5 player to win the Heisman, or at least the last uh, player from outside the Power Five to win the Heisman was Ty Detmer from BYU in 1990. So, and, you know, and the fact that air raid quarterbacks notoriously rarely get the uh, praise that they deserve for the, for the stats they put up. So I wasn't surprised, and I'm, and I'm still not surprised by the lack of recognition there from, you know, more national media types. But it, it, to me, it's still indefensible. I think Zach Kitley kind of put it best when he was talking to the press this week. That award is really meant for the person who, uh, or for the player rather, that makes, you know, the biggest, is like the central piece of their team and has the stats to back it up. And I don't think there's a better example of that in the country right now than Bailey Zappi. For how good WKU's offense has been, it's it's all been on his shoulders for better or worse. And there's been some rough patches, I mean, earlier in the season. But also, you know, I, I think, you know, you take away the fact that they ran into a, a, another Heisman candidate, Kenneth Walker, at Michigan State, and then uh, some, you know, some tough days defending the run against Army in Indiana. I think he'd be right. I think he'd be right there. I think the fact that they started the season one and four really, really hurt him as well. So that's that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, no, I mean, we'll have plenty of time to get into uh, to get into that as a you know Heisman uh, situation plays out. But yeah, overall, just my thoughts. This win really justifies the move and everything that Tyson Helton did in terms of shifting the offense, and we'll see how things play out. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, Western Kentucky fans can appreciate the type of performance this was and how rare this this kind of comes up. So uh, I'm interested to see what the next few months hold for for that football program. Um, but we have North Texas uh, beating UTSA this past weekend. Nobody saw this result coming. If if you say you did, you're lying. <laughs> uh, UNT completely dominated this game. 
Mean Green forced three turnovers. Uh, Ika Ika Ragsdale. Um, I'm so sorry if that's not the pro- correct pronunciation. Uh, turned in a fantastic day. Uh, scored two touchdowns and ran for 146 yards. And then you had DeAndre Torrey, who ran for another 108 yards and three more touchdowns. So UNT get to six and six and finish the regular season bowl eligible. I think it can be argued that this run saved Seth Luttrell's job. Um, there's clearly like he clearly still knows how to to win games. I really don't know what happened to them in the, those first few games, other than just really having to adjust to the fact that you're not you know, you're not a quarterback centric offense anymore. Um, and then UTSA, no more perfect season for them. And they need to do a better job of a lot of things in this USA championship game. And in particular, they've been really bad against the run the last three weeks. Yeah. Joe, it's interesting. You talk about Seth Luttrell and what kind of happened. I, I kind of sum it up as easily as this. Their defense showed up. They stopped allowing 40 and 50 points a game. Yes, they certainly were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they certainly were trying to find, you know, and develop that new offensive identity. I think that really developed last year when they had Oscar Attaway, Trey Siggers, and DeAndre Torrey. And they found a way to utilize three backs again this year, as you mentioned, with Ragsdale, uh, DeAndre Torrey, and uh, excuse me, I'm forgetting the third back off the top of my head right now, but they've managed to have um, a couple backs. I believe it's Anderson is that that third back, memory serves me correct, who gets the uh the third the third string reps and they have five rushers uh, excuse me uh, uh io and there's an, another uh, uh tongue twister io adehi now again i'll give the same apologies if i've butchered that name i apologize i need to look up the uh the game notes there for the pronunciation guy at north texas but my point is north texas has five, uh, three rushers who rush for over 450 yards this year and of course as you mentioned deandre torrey the 23 carries for 108 yards and three touchdowns. He gets his first thousand yard season. Someone who had a very productive freshman year, scored 15 touchdowns, 970 something yards, and now gets uh, his first thousand yards, thousand yard season in his senior season. But yeah, I think that's been the difference, Joe. And part of it, listen, I, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. The North Texas struggles defensively is one that stretched back again, third defensive coordinator in three years. Uh, looks like things are heading in the right direction with Phil Bennett especially over the last five, six games, five, six weeks. But I wonder how much of this, and again, curious your thoughts, is when you're shifting offensive philosophy and you're realizing that you really want to hammer home the run game, right? You're keeping your defense off the field. And ideally, if you're running the ball well, you're eating up clock and moving the chains. I think part of that, as you've shifted away from being an offensive team, is if you're moving the chains, putting your offense in good situations. I've seen plenty of this with FIU, and I apologize if this sounds as coach, sounds I like coach speak, but it's just real. If you're having a bunch of three and outs and, and you know, you're behind the chains on second down and third down, your defense can't stop them all the time. And then when you had a defense that really was struggling as is certainly not helping them out. So I, I just think that's been a, a big thing, especially over the past six weeks. I think the exact number, Joe, in terms of points per game that they're averaging over the last uh, few weeks in terms of the, the win streak for North Texas, want to pull it up here really quick. Yeah. They're allowing an average of 17 points per game over the last five weeks in the previous five, which were all losses, they were allowing 38 and a half. So simple as that with North Texas. Yeah. I'm fascinated to see if they can kind of keep up the standard that they've set for themselves in these last few weeks in terms of their defensive play. Um, I don't know. Part of me is like a part of me is a big proponent of if it's not working, change it up. But also I, I just said, you know, earlier in the show, I think you need to allow coaches the time to kind of implement the the system and the culture they want. And I think that applies to uh, coordinators to a certain extent as well. 
And, you know, hopefully with, with what North Texas has been able to do defensively this year, hopefully they're, you know, their coaching staff is, is able to recognize what they were able to do well, build on it, and just you know do it more more consistently and start on the right foot in fall camp. Um, but I don't know. North Texas is uh, you know heading in the right direction. But with, with UTSA, I'm curious, Eric. Anything about this game and these last couple of results we've seen from them that obviously they've they've won two out of their last three games. But I think in all of those, really not their best work. And it's interesting to me that you know utsa has been kind of this team of destiny for the last several months and now they're you know running into some issues joe i firmly believe this yes the last few weeks have been i don't use word troubling but they haven't been the same standard quote unquote that utsa has played and you know when they want to at least the early part of the year when they were winning games right but it's just hard to play listen it's hard to go undefeated and i think that's something we take for granted and we look at teams you know who make it look easy in terms of you know maybe power five teams or even teams that are able to just win eight nine ten games a year it's hard to go undefeated so i'm just not shocked that and, and another thing joe look at their season when you look at the early part of it 37 30 over illinois 31 28 I believe that was the game that, uh, uh, come on, I'm forgetting UTSA's kicker, and I should know off the top of my head right now, um, hit the game-winning field goal against Memphis. They had a 24-17 win versus a horrendous UNLV team, six-point win over Western. They had some games that they had to, you know, they, they had to fight. Uh, 100 Duplessis, thank you, is the kicker for, for uh, UTSA. They had to fight. So it, by all means, this has not been, you know, them blowing out teams by 40 points. They're not like, you know, the 0-1 Hurricanes that just was dominating everybody by 50 every week. So I think you have to take that into consideration. Also, it's just hard to do it for 12 weeks in a row. So I guess the positive thing in my mind, if, you, if you're if you a UTSA fan, you want to take a, a positive takeaway from this is it happened this week instead of next week. Because in my mind, I think you get the bigger letdown if you don't win the conference. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, so, I mean, anything could happen on uh, on Friday this week. I'm excited to see what happens there. Um, and then we had Rice beating Louisiana Tech 35 to 31. Rice uh, gets a four and eight, which is their best record since 2015. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what that kind of means for the program in a second. But on the Tech side, Bulldogs finished their year with three wins. Um, and obviously just prior to this game and after we recorded last week's podcast, we find out Skip Holtz out as Tech's head coach after uh, prior to this year seven straight bowl game trips. Um, and then obviously this, this, this year was the last straw, I guess I have to admit, I didn't see that coming. I thought Skip Holtz had, had built something pretty, pretty strong in, in Ruston there. So I don't know. I mean, I think some things had to change. I think this is kind of a, a sign that the Louisiana tech administration know that, you know, there's a lot of things that probably need to change. Uh, if, you know, the whole conference realignment situation of the last three, four months has taught them anything, but I don't know. I, I feel like replacing Skip Holtz should have been lower on that list than it turned out to be. But, you know, ultimately I know folks have high expectations for that program and, and three and nine is not where they expect to be. So Joe, you know, sometimes I tend to answer your, your, you know, statements in the form of a question. I'm going to do so here. If I told you that, a just you know blind taste test here you're gonna have a 
64 and 50 record over nine years, you're going to make eight consecutive bowl games, eight out of 10. Would you take that? If I'm a head coach, I think you can, I think I could do a lot worse, <laughs> but um, yeah, is it seven or eight? I counted seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I counted seven, it's seven. Um, seven. But seven of nine, seven of nine. Sorry. Yes. Okay. No, no, it's all right. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, I think we, we talked about this in the summer, actually, when we were previewing Louisiana tech, I think a lot of, um, you know, more spoiled fan bases, the, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Georgias, you know, et cetera, would look at that kind of record and not be too impressed. But on the other side, I think there's even more significantly more, uh, fan bases from the G5 and even the P5 ranks and the FCS ranks that would look at seven straight bowl games and kill for that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm not saying Louisiana Tech is making a bad decision here. I'm saying it's, it's you know, it, they're saying like they're done with this level of success and really want to try to elevate so that they don't get left out of the next round of realignment, I think is what's going okay. on. But that, but all, but all in all, I don't, I don't think Skip Holtz has, has done badly i think just the the expectations have been made so high by playing in an era of you know several future hall of famers with with saban and you know etc um saban and the rest is kind of the the general theme of the last 20 years of college football isn't it but anyway yeah i mean i don't i don't think skip holtz is a bad coach i think he'll be fine at going to coach somewhere else so, yeah. Okay. So, so that kind of bleeds into my second point and, you know, forgive me tech and owl fans. I, I, the only thing I really got on this one was the fact that skip Holtz is gone and Mike Bloomberg is coming back. Not that I am advocating for either or I for one, either way, or the other, my second question, and I'll, I'll make sure to merge this with the rice point, Joe, but I want to make sure it's a clear distinction. I think this is a byproduct of what I'll call the UCF of group of five football, right? We've seen UCF achieve great heights because prior to UCF, Boise State was that program, right? That perennially, perennially, excuse me, I always struggle with that word, um, was a top 25 group of five team and, you know, sometimes top 10 and they would play in a New Year's Six Bowl game and, you know, that would be it, right? And then UCF came through and they raised a bunch of hell and noise, <clears throat> excuse me, and we've seen what that's done. Since and now we've seen Cincinnati after. And I think there's this idea that if you're a group of five team, that should be the ceiling. And on one hand, that has maybe opened up some eyes amongst the group of five ranks to think, hey, you know what? It's great that uh, they've done that and we can break through the glass ceiling. But on the other hand, I'm sorry. I do think there is some merit in having nine, let's see, one, two, three, four, nine, or three nine-win years, a 10-win year, an eight-win year, and a seven-win year, right? And also, to further that point, in my mind, I just think inevitably you're going to have these points where you get a three and nine or four and eight. But it doesn't mean that you won't get back to three nine-win years. So I guess it depends on whatever, uh, and we've seen some tech fans in Rustin say that, hey, they're a little frustrated. So I guess it depends on whatever your definition of good is in Rustin. I just know for me personally, and this is no slight on tech or Rustin, I just don't think that there's any reason for, I, I, I shouldn't say any reason because you should always want the best, right? But I just think in my mind, that's a pretty solid resume based on the circumstances that tech are in, right? And to flip it to Rice, 
listen, the you can make the same case here with the Owls, in my opinion. Was the fourth win, and, and I'm genuinely curious. I'd love to know, and I, maybe we can chop it up with the roost and get more background on this. I'd love to know if that fourth win was the deciding factor to say, hey, we at least have seen a improvement based on you know your four years, this being the most amount of wins Rice has had as a program since, I believe, 2015, the fourth win, that this was it. Because I and, and Joe, if it was it, I'm genuinely curious, like, what's the difference between three and four? <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, this is kind of my take on the tech and rice situations. And apologies if anyone can hear the screaming child in the background. It's not mine. It, it's my neighbor. But we just live really close because in Florida, everything's an A-lot. <laughs> and children can own homes in Florida. Most people don't know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... To bring it back to to Rice, you know, it, you mentioned the Roost. They do a fantastic job covering Rice athletics. Highly recommend them. Um, I was reading a little bit of them after this game, and one of the the phrases that they used when talking about the fact that the football team made it to four and eight this year, which is the best record they've had uh, under Mike Bloomgren and the best record they've had since 2015 um, when they won five games, is the fact that you you have that tangible improvement that tangible success the fact that that win total is slowly ticking up i that's the justification that i think you know the administration is using to let mike bloomgren uh continue doing this you know if it were me i can't say that i would feel the same thing but at the same time now they at least have like that mathematical justification for giving him another chance i guess but yeah and i mean to bring it back to Louisiana tech as well to play devil's advocate here against, you know, kind of the points that I was making in all that time that skip Holtz, uh, you know, was at Louisiana tech and was having that kind of moderate success, no league titles. And when you're in a conference with coaches like Bill Clark, uh, Jeff trailer, now, uh, now Charles Huff, Tyson Helton, uh, Ricky Ronnie, like, if you're if you're not going to prove that you can you know win trophies, then I can I can see why people would be frustrated by that. But also, you know, sometimes that just happens. Skip Holtz has won a lot of the games, and you know, I I still didn't see his uh, his departure coming here. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It, it, to put a cap on it. I'm not. I'm never going to say a fan base should be complacent, right? Because I, I can speak again as someone who graduated from UCF. I thought the best was 2013. All right. I thought the best was competing for CUSA titles at then the time CUSA titles and American titles and a Fiesta Bowl. And clearly we've seen that, you know, you can do more. Since you brought up UCF, um, this past weekend after Cincinnati won, I I tweeted from the UDD account that uh oh hey, Luke Fickle put together two uh undefeated regular seasons in Cincinnati. And I I couldn't I didn't have the exact number because it was like Thanksgiving Day and I was just drunk on meat, you know, that I'm sure you can relate to that from holiday dinners, Eric. And I didn't want to like do the full research, but basically in looking at the numbers, there's only been a handful of FBS coaches that have done that. So all I said was, Hey, Luke fickle, two undefeated regular seasons in a row. That's a rare feat in FBS immediately mentioned slam with the UCF people being like, Oh, guess what we did two, three years ago. Like no one, nobody is saying that wasn't impressive. If you go back two, three years, us and the, the Banneret guys were so were like beating the drum so hard for UCF. So I don't know that, that kind of tickled me. Like other schools are, are allowed to have nice things too, UCF fans. 
Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned that, right? As as a knight, uh, I can tell you this. You know, the uh, the UCF Twitter mafia, they're, they're they're real. That's how they that's what they call themselves, right? So they certainly are. And listen, I think every fan base is defensive. I think UCF's fan base gets somewhat of a bad rap in terms of. Oh yeah, you know they they'll jump over uh, jump on anyone over everything and listen the same way they'll jump on Mike Bianchi, which we you know we've referenced on this podcast was the Orlando Sentinel uh, columnist there just as quickly as they'll jump on a national guy right so at least they're equal opportunity in terms of who they'll go after but yeah the fan base is definitely defensive and they're you know certainly going through a a bit of an adjustment period not uh, you know going undefeated and and seeing what we've had this year and uh, the way the the year is shaking out for UCF so uh, yeah I listen. Multiple teams can have nice things, but you endured the wrath of the uh, Twitter mafia. So sorry about that. Buddy. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't even wrath. It was just like, it was, I don't know. It was just, it was just funny. It was just like, this wasn't even about you, <laughs> but I don't know. it's always uh, about UCF. Don't you know that? That's, that's fair. I should know that by now. <laughs> um, and then we had old dominion beating Charlotte 56 34 uh, old dominion get to six and six for a bowl game uh, in this one. Charlotte miss out. They finished their year uh, five and seven. Um, but the thing about, you know, Charlotte for this game, do want to point this out. In their last uh, five games, uh, Chris Reynolds, five interceptions, got sacked 10 times. And then obviously they never really figured out their whole main issue, right? Which was defending the run. If you go back to to this game, I mean, it was kind of more of the same, really, Uh the old dominion kind of finished this game with uh, 113 passing yards, which is pretty high for them. And then 328 yards at a Hayden Wolf with three touchdowns and two interceptions. So uh, he demonstrates he, he obviously still has a little bit of growth to do, but then, you know, we were talking about him last week. Uh, Blake Watson had another hundred yard day, scored two rushing touchdowns. Um, so just further proof that, you know, that defense really never got where they needed to be. And they, they made some changes in these, uh, these last few weeks as a result, which we'll talk about soon, but you know, want to make sure that this is known. I love what Ricky Ronnie's doing with this old dominion program. And I think they're headed in a really, really exciting direction. Yeah. I mean, in terms of Charlotte, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, yeah, they've struggled against the run, but even this one, they only allowed 113 yards. And I know, you know, it's still another hundred yard day. And Blake Watson, when you're ripping off five yards of carry, although one of those, uh, came on a 46 yard run. So when you look at the numbers, they did fairly well. He's much better than they've done in previous weeks. Overall, as a defense, they struggled, right? And this is a byproduct of looking at, or I shouldn't say it's a byproduct. You look at what happened on Saturday. This was Ali Jennings. Ali Jennings, a third, nine grabs for 252 and three touchdowns. He almost was able to reach a thousand yards in the year. And coming into this game, I think he was something like 320 or 330 yards shy of that. So this was a byproduct. And we'll get into, um, as you mentioned, the offensive corner situation at ODU. We'll get into the defensive situation at Charlotte. But Hayden Wolf, I, I don't want to you know go too long here, but I, listen, I thought Hayden Wolf did enough to establish himself as the guy, based on the way he played down the stretch of 2019. So we'll see if he's done enough now. And I'm all for bringing in competition. You know, you want to make your guys compete, but. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't want to project a transfer portal entry for Hayden Wolf, right? I'm not saying that, but if, if they keep bringing in guys and, and he, you know, inevitably ends up as, let's just say he ends up as the backup again next year. Some team's going to get a really damn good quarterback in my mind. Cause you said you love what Ricky Ronnie's doing. And so do I. I, I would take Hayden Wolf as my quarterback right now. I mean, yeah, he's that prototypical, maybe he's a throwback to the past Joe in the sense that he's not as mobile as I guess you may like a quarterback to be in today's day and age. 
but he's mobile enough. He's a hell of a passer. I mean, just a natural passer. And, and, and let's, okay. Last thing I'll say on this coaches get to see these guys in practice every day. And that's something that I've, you know, grown to appreciate in covering college football. So they get to see things that I don't, right. And maybe there's, you know, an inconsistency in practice, or I don't know that kept him from winning the job from day one, but I think we've seen enough in games to where he should be the guy. I completely agree. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more because I firmly think, you know, old dominion needs to like continue to kind of build that offense around what Hayden Wolf uh, and his potential are. And Obviously, he's not a perfect quarterback. He threw two interceptions in this game, and he's he's thrown. Um, let me see what what's his interception total for this year. So he's thrown six interceptions this year to, compared to nine touchdowns. So again, not perfect, but with how big he is and the you know potential that he brings to this offense, you know, average twelve point six yards a, a you know a completion in this game. I, I think that's, you know, interesting if they're, you know, continuing to kind of add more uh, potential starters to that lineup, which uh, they did this week, which we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, Southern Miss, 37, FIU 17. Superback Frank Gore, 68 rushing yards, two rushing touchdowns, 81 passing yards, and two touchdown passes. Uh, Southern Miss finished the year 3-9, uh, and nine, and, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting – you know, emotional uh, duality with this game, right? Because on the one hand, Southern Miss's seniors have dealt with their own, you know, handful of, you know, crappy scenarios with the Jay Hobson situation that happened a couple of years ago. The insane amount of injuries they've dealt with over the past, you know, two years. And obviously they had the COVID year and, with what they they were able to kind of do these last three games um, with, you know, kind of working with the super back type of offense uh, from the UTSA game onward, I'm really happy for them. I'm really happy that they kind of got to end the, their, you know, their college football career on a high note and, and do something fun and, you know, do it in this way that is, uh, you know, very entertaining. And I think they're going to remember it for a long time. On the other side of that, you had FIU, uh, who, you know, their issues as a program have been well publicized, especially with us. And watching this and watching kind of the, the photos and the coverage that you tweeted out, Eric, of, you know, the emotional scenes as Butch Davis's time as the head coach of this program comes to an end. Obviously, you feel for them as well. And I highly doubt, you know, obviously the seniors on that team. Uh, were a big part of the success that the program found early in in Butch Davis's tenure. But the last two to three years, this cannot be the college experience that they, you know, wanted for themselves. Um, but obviously would love to kind of hear your take since you were there and you drove from Tampa to Hattiesburg. My God, man, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it was it was a smooth eight hour ride, smooth eight hour ride, a, a, a nice ride through the South. I, I will say this: not much to look at once you get into Mississippi. And that's no shade on Mississippi. That's just as you're driving, it's like, damn, I wish I had something to look at. And then, it's like you drive for two hours, and all of a sudden you pop up in Hattiesburg, and like you you're looking at nothing, and then you're at MM Roberts. <laughs> it's kind of that way. But nevertheless, uh, let's start with Southern Miss, right? You talked about just how much fun they look to be having, and Joe. We got to start with this before anything. I had a chance to see it live, and I believe you tweeted it out from the account. The proposal, a, a, a 
a proposal. And of course, the, na- the name of the player is escape. Y'all make sure to look that up uh, before we transfer to the next game. But I'm there doing the pregame radio show, FIU pregame radio show with uh, uh, AJ Ricketts. Shout out to front of the podcast, AJ Ricketts. And he'd asked me a question about realignment. And I'm, you know, answering that question. Then I look out the corner of my eye and I look at the monitor that, <laughs> excuse me, monitor that we have in the booth. And I see a player down on one knee. I'm like, oh crap, we got a proposal. And she said, yes. And clearly he planned it out because they had a giant, she said yes on the, uh, on the jumbotron there. Um, but in terms of on the field, yeah, listen, you can tell the vibe I get down there having a chance now to see this Southern Miss team play live is that Will Hall's really energized his program. And you kind of see the, you know, how passionate and emotional he gets about it when he says things like I'm the biggest fraud to come to Mississippi in 50 years after the opening week loss. But also, listen, man, you can tell they like playing for this guy. Their sidelines are fired up. Of course, winning does that to you. Winning will fire up any sideline. But they could tell, Joe, they were having fun out there. They looked as if, you know, hey, we got nothing to lose. It's the last game of the year. We don't have a quarterback. We're just going to go out there and just play football and fight for each other and see how things play out. And listen, Frank Gore Jr., there was a a joke, and I'm sure you'll talk about it, whether it's after this part or the mid part of the uh, podcast in terms of whether or not we would see Frank or compete in the quarterback competition or the super back use more next year. He confirmed you'd see more of the super back, but Frank Gore jr. Will return to his running back spot, but man, just kudos to him for taking the, the bull on by the horns, Joe, in this era of transfer portal and all these things. He's like, yeah, I'll go play quarterback. <laughs> and he did a hell of a job. I mean, again, throwing two TD passes and Joe, these aren't like gimmicky TD passes. He, he's, he's throwing them. Is he, you know, Tom Brady? No, but he's throwing him against division one defenses and hitting guys in the end zone. And it helps when you have a Jason Brownlee is one of the better receivers in CUSA. And also kudos to him for the fact that he had to play through this. And as a receiver, you know, you hear from your coach, all right, you're probably only going to get like 10 passes a game, but eight of them are going to go to you, right? As the number one guy, uh, you know, that that's probably something that's not ideal, especially because from a running back, but work out for them. Flipping into the FIU side of things, yeah, man, it, it, Joe, it was emotional. I, I went down to postgame not knowing what to expect uh, from players or from Butch Davis, whether we'd hear from him or not, but it was pretty apparent. As soon as those guys came off the field, running backs coach Sean Binks was there and was giving all those guys hugs. I mean, every single player came off the field, it, just a hug. And Joe, they didn't they didn't sell it pregame, but postgame, it's like everything let out. The tears, the emotion that this was it. Saw Richard and Rashard Dames walk off the field arm in arm, you know, twins who, at least like I mentioned, they're going out together, playing their final collegiate games, and maybe their final football game ever together, um, you know, walking off the field. Uh, quarterbacks coach Bryn Renner, you know, he had tears in his eyes as he walked out to the, after the, uh, after the game, walked out of the locker room, just took a look at the field one last time. Drew Davis, Butch Davis, right after the game, they walked out and got a, got a picture together from an FIU staffer. And then Butch Davis, as I, as you talk about, tweet out some of the photos of him, Hugging the guys, Davon Strickland, Max Bortenschlager. I mean, a lot of tears. And I'm not saying that, you know, metaphorically. A lot of tears in that locker room. A lot of guys, you know, shaking position coaches' hands or hugging their position coaches for the final time, knowing that this is the final time we're going to be together. And and we've already seen, I believe, seven or eight guys from FIU announce that they're hitting the portal just over the last 24, 36 hours. So clearly uh, plays a factor as well. So, yeah, man, it was very emotional. Even Butch. Butch was choking back tears. You know, I, I probably wish I'd sent over some of the audio, but – Butch was choking back tears as he opened up his, his statement. You know, he kind of had to fight through, you know, it, it, the the frog in his throat to start his presser. So overall, and, and listen, there will be plenty that will be said about the FIU athletic situation in the weeks to come. 
and plenty has been said. But for me, I, I just thought that game was about the seniors uh, and the players as a whole, everything they've been through, and the fact that that group together, this is the last link for FIU fans to the 17 wins in two years, the three consecutive bowl games. When that bus pulled off from M.M. Roberts Stadium, that's the last link to what it was, what was, excuse me, the most successful three-year stretch in program history. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And like you said, we're, we're obviously nowhere near done with, with FIU um, and kind of figuring out where they go from here as a program. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the show. Um, but I did want to end on this. You mentioned Will Hall and kind of his personality. And I'm genuinely excited to see where he goes as a head coach because – he is. He does seem like this kind of guy that you want to play for, and the the his you know humility that he kind of brings to this position, and the fact that he calls himself a fraud. But I mean, he took this team that had no quarterback and was able to that that very easily could have just been like, well, we're screwed for the last three weeks of the year, and they played some of their best football you know, of the last like two years. So, you know, Will Hall, you're not a fraud. You are, you know, you're a coach, buddy. I, you know, I'm sure you know that. But at the same time, like putting Frank Gore in the spotlight and I want to, you know, give him some love too because, you know, I think it's very easy for people like us to assume that, oh, you know, this kid who's the star of this, uh, you know, this, you know, University of Miami legend, uh, his dad had a really solid pro career. You know, it, it's very easy to kind of let that go to your head and be like, what? I got to play quarterback now. Pfft, I don't need this. And, but he stepped up and he throws a heck of a deep ball. And if you kind of watched his, you know, media availability after the game, he talked about like, I, I, I live for situations like this. Like I want the ball. I want to do everything I can to help, help the team succeed. And that's very, that's very cool to see. I'm excited about the future of Southern Miss football, but for the love of God, they have to stay healthy. <laughs> yeah, got to stay healthy in the quarterback position. We'll talk about the, the future of the Southern Miss quarterback situation in the middle part. But yeah, they, they got to do that. All right. To wrap up the recap section of the show, uh, FAU 17, Middle Tennessee 27. So MTSU get to 6-6. Six and six, uh, So they're also bowl eligible. Also, Rick Stockstill's uh, 100th win with the program. Uh, so milestone for him. Uh, and we know for a fact that MTSU are going to the Bahamas Bowl on December 17th, uh, which we'll talk about on a later show. But uh, what really put this one away was a strip sack that turned it into a defensive touchdown uh, by Jordan Ferguson. And FAU finished 5-7, and seven, no bowl for them. And, you know, real quick, uh, just before we kind of get into uh, the future of the FAU program, which is, you know, going to be uh, probably a little bit of a downer, I do want to talk about Jordan Ferguson and that play. And then also just, you know, I, I forget when it was in the game, but at one point MTSU ran that jumbo package uh, to score and kind of, you know, elongate that lead. Eric, why are, why are fat guy touchdowns so great? Why are they so entertaining? Yeah, Joe. So I think the reason we love big man touchdowns, right. In terms of, we had two of them in this game, Jordan Ferguson, he gets the, uh, the, um, the touchdown there at the end of the game in terms of, you know, the, the forest fumble and, is able to you know make his way to, to the end zone 71 yard fumble return but then also the game winning touchdown scored by zaylen wood six yard td pass the big defensive tackle you know joe that's another big man touchdown six one two seventy red shirt freshman uh from georgia I, I think the reason we love big man touchdowns are because the average person on the couch thinks that oh man i can do that right and again you're not that athlete 
your 6'1", 270 build or your 6'2", 310-pound build is not the same as the you know collegiate athlete or NFL athletes build or especially when like I love when I see guys like oh yeah you know NBA players they're all kind of whatever like dude there's guys who are 6'8", 250, 260 just doing the things they do so don't get your athleticism confused but I think that's why you love big guy touchdowns and of course you know everyone loves a big guy celebration but I think it's a relatability factor that you're not 6'6", 280, 2% body fat of Miles Garrett but you can be that big guy and score at least you think <laughs> yeah oh man i i had one i played offensive line in my playing days and i had one in practice and nothing in my life has ever lived up to that moment <laughs> i've been chasing that dragon ever since <laughs> it's it's a special moment as a fat dude um but then uh let, let's talk about fau a little bit um, in the aftermath of this game, we saw a lot of Willie Taggart's players kind of defending him on social media with all the the talk of him potentially getting the boot. Um, I think that counts for something when your players are so quick to defend you in a public setting. And I think that, you know, I think that that speaks to Willie Taggart's ability to build programs. And like we've seen him, you know, do that at Western Kentucky, South Florida, et cetera. That being said, if we're going off of gut feelings, Eric, I'm thinking Taggart's days at FAU are numbered because the bar was set so high, frankly, um, by by Lane Kiffin. Obviously, FAU have a lot to do with uh, financially, so no guarantees until they actually announce something. But um, not the year that anybody really envisioned for FAU finishing at uh, five and seven. Yeah, in terms of for FAU, it's you talk about Willie Taggart's ability to build programs right and that's one thing what i think is interesting is in terms of the players coming to his defense that's always great and you want to see that right but what i think you do have to take into account is we talked about regression earlier and you have to think that this is a clear regression for fau from where they were as a program now now the question is and i think this is something that that is being talked about and speculated amongst people who are in FAU circles is it was the talent at FAU that Lane Kiffin left over, you know, essentially the, the question is, was Willie Taggart handed a, you know, Ferrari or was he handed like a Mazda? And I'm someone who drives a Mazda, so I'm not hating on a Mazda, but essentially is this a combination of the talent being left over and not necessarily being what, we thought it was going into the year in terms of the present projections and Tegger trying to get his own guys in there and the time it takes for that to happen. My opinion is this. I think it can be a combination of both, but with that being said, when you take over a program that had won two conference titles, you can't crash it into a ditch. And as much as I like Willie Tagger, there's no denying that two five win years, you at least skidded off the road that the that the trajectory of the program seemed to be on yeah exactly like with what willie taggart's turned in the last couple of years i think everybody just expected this to be going faster and again you make the you know ferrari to mazda comparison i think i don't know it, it at the same time like you have to wonder you know mazda is a fine car but is the top speed on a mazda really that that great or do you need to like 
bring in a – I'm not a car guy. I don't know where I'm going with this analogy. I think the point is, <laughs> you know, is, is the ceiling for this FAU team really that high to the point that FAU fans and, and administrators really have the patience for it? Again, I will put it to you like this. You can make arguments if you want to defend Willie Taggart, and I can do that for days. But what is clear is the trajectory of the program isn't what it was before. And can you take the chance of continuing that for another year? Or do you try to just do it now? Listen, Joe, they, when you're going to the American, you're going to have fees to pay. Uh, you got to pay Conference USA a buyout fee, and you got to pay a fee to get in the conference. And I think that could make a difference. It really could come down to whether or not they can find the money to say, hey, we'll pay your buyout and goodbye. Um, again, I, 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 it's an interesting situation. And, and like I said, I, you can make the case. You can, you can try to make an argument for bringing Willie Taggart back. But do you decide just to cut ties now and say, hey, we don't like where we're going and we're going to cut bait? We'll see what happens. Yeah, that we will. Um, all right. Speaking of staffing changes, uh, let's jump into some news and notes for this middle section. Uh, Old Dominion obviously had a pretty good year this year at six and six. I think better than a lot of people expected them to be. If you look at uh, just conference USA stats for this year as a team, scoring offense of Old Dominion, middle of the road. As a passing offense, middle of the road, kind of. They were 10th. Um, so I guess that's more towards the bottom. But, you know, my point is, I didn't see a staffing change for Old Dominion coming. But, Lo and behold, offensive coordinator Kirk Campbell uh, has been uh, fired, let go from the program, um, which is interesting to me. I would think you would want to take what you have started to build here at Old Dominion and and keep going with that staff. I mean, again, they weren't perfect, obviously, but I don't know. I, I found it pretty odd that they made this decision coming off of, you know, a, like, they don't even know if they're going to a bowl game yet. They're eligible, but obviously, you know, one Conference USA team is more than likely going to get left out. So it's it's odd that they made this decision. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, listen, again, as I talked about when, you know, I was talking about Ricky Ronnie and Hayden Wolf, I'm not in that locker room. So I can't sit here and say what motivated Ricky Ronnie to make this move. And when I read the piece from David Hall, don't think he really offered up any comment besides wishing you know his former offensive coordinator best of wishes joe when you look at the season for odu you can draw a clear line of demarcation that this offense improved as a whole once hayden wolf took over as quarterback and i say that because the now backup dj mack that was ricky ronnie's guy who, who we brought in right and of course in conjunction with this coaching staff sure it's not just you know it's a it's a group thing but when you look at the offense that Ricky Ronnie ran at Penn State, it's one that is predicated around having a quarterback who can move a little bit. Don't have to be Michael Vick, don't have to be Lamar Jackson, but one who can at least move the pocket. That DJ Mack can certainly do better than Hayden Wolf. And DJ Mack did show some level of uh, proficiency being a passer at UCF in very, very small sample size. And he's a Norfolk guy, and I can understand, you know, highly touted coming out of high school i'm gonna stand like hey you know i want to scratch the surface here see what i can get but again joe i don't know how deeply you look at the passing numbers or really the offensive numbers as a whole dj just wasn't getting it done as a passer and, and it, it probably stymied things in the run game as well when you're able to keen on one aspect of your, of your offense 
But to bring it back to Ronnie and offensive corner situation, that's the guy you brought in. So it's kind of confusing, surprising, bewildering, I guess, that this move was made given just, the again, the level of success that the offense has had since the move to Hayden Wolf was made. And then also, and this is something that I, I think you can't overlook, is the fact that this would be Hayden Wolf third offensive coordinator excuse me well yeah next year next year will be his third offensive coordinator in one two three four holy crap is it be five full years it's a it, he's hated was just a freshman 2019 is a red he was a true freshman 2020 they didn't play 2020 so four years okay so third offensive coordinator in four years and again third quarterbacks coach as well that's just a lot of turnover at a very important position. And I think, especially after having talked to so many FIU players who their one complaint was the number of voices they heard in their position room and how, you know, what that does to your development when you're trying to learn different techniques and different methods and different, you know, from different voices. That's something I think to be aware of. Now, again, Ricky Ronnie knows what he's doing, right? And he's in charge and he's certainly got the team in a bowl game. And those are all great, or, or potentially bowl eligible. Potentially in a bowl game is all great things. But the move is curious. So my thoughts there. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize when you play a position like quarterback, your mechanics are so important, and you really don't want someone messing with your mechanics if they're working, right? I think it kind of goes the same with in, a, in sports like uh, like tennis and golf, where you know so much of what you do comes from your core and the way that like the weight of your body transfers power from one limb to the other to your point you don't want somebody messing with that so consistently it's weird that old dominion would continuously make these changes now that being said i think the rest of the pieces of this team are, are really solid but i don't know if i had to pick one thing that i really don't like about what old dominion is doing right now it's the constant changes but on the note of their quarterback um old dominion gets some added depth in that position this uh, this week with the transfer of Brendan Clark, uh, who comes in from Notre Dame. Uh, he is going to be a junior, uh, or rather, he I believe he has two years left of eligibility, um, two or three, because he was a freshman in Notre Dame in 2019, uh, played in two games, only had one completion, which was a touchdown for 22 yards. And then in 2020, uh, only played in one game, and then didn't play it all this year. So I believe that gives him, with the COVID year, that should give him two more years. Um, but anyway, we just kind of got done talking about what Old Dominion's quarterback room looks like right now with Hayden Wolf. Uh, and then DJ Mack is done, correct? Um, he has eligibility left. He has um, eligibility left? Okay. Yes. So, yeah, so you have him in there, and then you add Brendan Clark, who – uh, you know, obviously, we we really don't know what he's fully capable of at this level because he hasn't played. But it's it's going to be interesting. You know, I don't. I feel like you wouldn't transfer from Notre Dame to Old Dominion if you were just going to be a, if you you know were confident you were just going to be a third stringer. You know what I mean? So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. But I'd be surprised if Hayden Wolf wasn't still QB one come uh, opening day of uh, of twenty twenty two. Here, we were talking earlier in the show about. Charlotte's uh, issues defending the run this year and just kind of the effect that uh, some poor defensive performances had 
on their overall record this year. Uh, taking some steps to alleviate that. Um, if you go back and look at uh, the changes that uh, Football Scoop reported this week, uh, defensive assistant coaches Brandon Cooper and Eddie Hicks uh, are, have been relieved of their duties within the Charlotte football program. Uh, Cooper, of course, was the co-defensive coordinator. So hopefully this seems like it's going to be uh, a step in the right direction for them because obviously this is uh, a part of the 49ers game that really needs to change moving into a new season. Yeah, yeah. In terms of defensively with Charlotte, as you mentioned, they, they have to improve. And, you know, we've had Will Healy on this podcast. You know, he's a guy who certainly cares about players. And I don't have any doubt that that, you know, applies to his coaches as well. Um, or, you know, his staff, I should say. Definitely got to be a tough move to, to make that uh, that decision. But as you mentioned, it's clear that defensively they have to improve. Um, defense has been an issue for them, even going back to, you know, 2019. I mean, they were really an offensively driven team. So, uh, they'll have to change, especially as we talked about early on, you know, in the podcast, in terms of the uh, recap run defense, one of the worst in all of FES football, and then really secondary. And of course it doesn't help when you lose guys like Alex Highsmith and Ben DeLuca and others, but they got to find a way to get more production there. Staying on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, let's talk about rice. Uh, they lose a, a pretty key contributor for that defense, um, in Antonio Montero, the linebacker from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, um, he had uh, he was a, he's going to go somewhere as a grad transfer, but had uh, 201 tackles, 16 and a half for loss, two sacks, an interception, and a forced fumble during his career at Rice. Uh, this season had 60 tackles and nine and a half for loss. So you kind of go back to last season when Rice lost Blaze Aldridge and the impact that he had on an albeit, you know, not amazing Rice team. Um, but Antonio Montero, um, you know, you kind of go back and, and look at the media coverage of Rice this season. A name you're going to continuously see is Montero and just the impact that he had on this defense from a leadership perspective and obviously individual performance. He's going to be really hard to replace. So I don't envy um, the the next man up for rice because they certainly have big shoes to fill but then again you know i think you know montero did a great job of uh of fulfilling the hole that blaze aldridge left in this program no joe it's a very good point in terms of you know not just replacing one of the better tacklers in all of conference usa but all the nation and blaze aldridge antonio montero guys like him and Trishon chamberlain and others really stepped in and i guess the concern if you're a rice fan is this has been such a defensively driven team losing guys like that hurts and we've seen them have other transfer portal losses such as Aldridge and guys like Calvin Anderson on the offensive line who's now leave with the New York Jets still so you know that's going to happen you're going to have guys who produce at this level and are going to go elsewhere and Montero certainly has his opportunities but yeah especially for a team that's been so defensively driven don't can't afford a you know a ton of losses there so yeah Rice needing uh you know some defensive firepower uh to hopefully get to that all important fifth win next year, uh, but we'll see. Uh, and then moving into some good news for some future CUSA candidates, New Mexico state and Jacksonville state made some head coaching moves recently to kind of hopefully elevate their program to where they want it to be. Uh, New Mexico state, they get a former TCU assistant and former Minnesota head coach, Jerry kill. Um, interested to see where that goes. You know, I think, First of all, Jerry Kill looks older than he is. He's not he's not an old man. But, you know, I think we've kind of, you know, I think a couple of years ago, a lot of people, including myself, were really, you know, pounding the drum to get some of these younger coaches in there and breathe fresh life into these uh, these programs that have maybe gotten a little bit complacent. But 
you know, I think Dana Dimmel to an extent has, you know, kind of changed some people's minds about that. New Mexico state seems to be, you know, following that mold here. Um, and then with another future CUSA member, FCS Jacksonville state who are going to get the bump up in 2023, obviously <laughs> former university of Arizona head coach and probably most famously university of Michigan and West Virginia university head coach, Rich Rodriguez. He's the new Jacksonville state Gamecocks coach. Uh, going to be introduced at a press conference on Tuesday. I'm very interested to see what he does. Uh, obviously, Jacksonville State has done some cool things. Um, didn't really put together the most successful year after beating Florida State, of course. Uh, but, you know, I think Rich Rodriguez obviously has never really been able to do anything quite on the level of what he did at West Virginia because, man, were those some fun teams. But – I think if he's gonna, you know, start kind of rebuilding his head coaching profile, I think this is the place to do it. Um, and obviously, I I don't think I mentioned this. He spent the last couple years as uh, the offensive coordinator at uh, Louisiana Monroe, where he was actually coaching uh, his son Rhett Rodriguez, um, who recovered. Who thankfully, by the way, recovered from a really serious uh, chest injury early this year. So happy to hear he's doing better. Um, but Eric, some, uh, some interesting developments with uh, some future CUSA members this week. Yeah, Joe, I'll keep it short and sweet on my end. What I think that, why I think this is a win for CUSA with, while these programs aren't certainly, you know, blue bloods, even amongst the conference USA ranks, maybe it's even the group of five ranks, you want to have head coaches that bring name recognition, right? So at least if you're watching Jackson, we'll say like, Oh yeah, Rich Rodriguez. Okay. We give me a reason to watch. Or even a Jerry Kill. It's a name you've heard, right? So I think that in itself, these are all small victories, but victories nevertheless for the league. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, somebody tweeted earlier today with this um, with this news. When you talk about like coaches who used to, you know, be notable for uh, success at, at Power Five jobs in 2023, we're going to have Rich Rod, Jerry Kill, Hugh Freeze, and potentially Willie Taggart all in conference USA at the same time. I think that's really, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think for as much flack as the league gets, I think that's one selling point they can look forward to. I mean, listen, you lose a Butch Davis, right? And that's a name that you can point back to with UM and others, but you gain a Charles Huff, who you coach on a Nick Saban, Will Healy's a personality, Will Hall, certainly going to, we all think great things will, or will come down there in Hattiesburg. So to get these more veteran names, in addition to some of the, the young and up and comers, I think it's a great thing. And then you just mentioned Will Hall. Hey, look, that's a good transition into uh, some talk about Southern Miss for 2022, particularly uh, what are they going to do at quarterback? After the game against FIU, uh, Will Hall had a quote that has like been buzzing around in my brain for the last few days. And here's the full quote. Someone asked if Frank Gore Jr. was in the conversation to be Southern Miss's starting quarterback next season. And his response was, quote, no, 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 he's not. Three no's. He'll play some quarterback, and it'll be a part of what we do. We've got a young man named Ty Keyes who's really good at playing quarterback. Keyes, of course, uh, was injured this year. Uh, we've got the number one quarterback in the state of Mississippi coming in, and we may add a transfer. You know what I'm saying? We're heavily recruiting uh, those to bring an older guy in the room so we're not so young. But we're going to be a quarterback-driven program. Frank is a winner. He's a tough guy. He played these last two games battered and bruised. He wanted to do this. He wanted to give us a chance to win, you know, uh, and and then it kind of trails off from there. But the point being, 
that Will Hall is is really looking into the transfer market to maybe get, you know, not necessarily a QB one, it sounds like, but he really wants someone with some significant playing experience to come in with this group that has been, you know, really has just not had the opportunity to kind of get meaningful minutes as uh, as a D1 quarterback yet due to all the injuries and, and everything else surrounding the Southern Miss program the last three years or so. So I am fascinated to see how Will Hall seizes this opportunity. Yeah, listen, I'm going to piggyback off what you said. I think the situation there is because of the injuries, you're really starting from scratch this time next year, or not this time next year, but come spring and fall camp in terms of your quarterback situation. You'd hope to identify a quarterback, and we saw that Trey Lowe was the starter initially, but he got banged up, and plenty of others have as well. You'd hope that you can be able to identify a quarterback, but because of the fact you played so many guys, 2021, at least from the quarterback position, served to be nothing more but extended spring practice. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I definitely think it'll be interesting to see what route they go. If they go the grad transfer route, they certainly going to have, or even the transfer portal. It doesn't have to be a grad transfer at this point. It can be grad transfer, a veteran, or just a transfer portal guy. And as Hall mentioned, they have some QB recruits coming in. I believe I just saw a quarterback who made his uh, official visit there at the, over the FIU game and, or excuse me, took a visit over the FIU game and gave his commitment. So Definitely be interesting to see how they go, but expect to see a little bit of Frank Gore Jr., but definitely not, or I should say the super back position. Doesn't just mean that'll be Frank Gore, but that position as a whole, one that stems back to Hall's time as a Division II coach, but he's still looking for his full-time single caller. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like when you look at this formation that, you know, the the super back thing that Southern Miss has used the last few weeks, I really wish it was sustainable <laughs> because it's just so fun to watch. And I think it's really given Southern Miss's offensive line the opportunity to just run block a bit more. And these, you know, these big Southern boys love to run block. And it's it's more fun to to run these type of offenses than I think um, it can be, you know, when you try to, you know, spread the ball more around, which is becoming more and more effective at the college level. Um, so I understand the need to shift because, you know, this can only be successful so many times. Um, especially if you're trying to be relevant on a national level as anything other than a novelty. But, you know, it, it was it was fun while it lasted. Well, you know, super back formation will always have Hattiesburg, you know, to, to paraphrase. Uh, what is the Humphrey Bogart movie? Casablanca. Thank you, me. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been fun. Before we wrap up middle section, I do want to revisit the FIU shenanigans again. Um, over the past couple of days, we have seen FIU, uh, you know, a, a soon-to-be former defensive coordinator, Everett Withers, uh, kind of make his frustrations with the the program known. There's so much of this <laughs> that, I, you know, I don't even know where to begin, really. Um, I would mostly just advise uh, you all to uh, just kind of go read his Twitter, for sure. Um, it's uh, at E-V-E-R-E. T-T underscore W-I-T-H-E-R-S. Um, and, you know, to start, it, it basically sounds like there has been, like, the, you know, Eric, I'll, I'll happily let you take the lead on this, but um, you know, where do you want to start with Everett Withers kind of airing his grievances with the FIU administration on Twitter over the last couple of days? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's <laughs> it's been Everett Withers, Butch Davis has obviously had plenty of things to say over the past few weeks and Everett Withers took it to another level. I mean, I don't know where to start in terms of 
And quite frankly, he's had smoke for anyone who's questioned him as far as his time at Texas State, which there's certain validity in that as well, considering the fact that they haven't exactly been a, a winning program prior to him and haven't been a winning program after. And FIU, you know, we'll see how things play out there. But I'll try to touch on some of the, I guess, highlights, I'll say here. Just go back through his Twitter feed again. Folks, read it for yourself. Uh, it, it's it, it was a lot. Um, I guess the one I'll start here with is, and first off, listen, I, I've had an opportunity. I, I should start with this. I had an opportunity to coach to, to coach to talk with Coach Withers uh, a couple times throughout you know this year, and he's been nothing but you know generous with his time with me, and I appreciate that. And even down to you know his tweets about the Green Machine, right? Talking about the cleanest football facilities ever worked in, the hardest group of men and women he's had a privilege being around the last nine months. But I also want to mention, he ended that tweet with, they need to do a seminar for the athletic department on how to do busy. So if you think that Everett is coming out of left field, he, he, he started it with that one three days ago. And then he took off with, you know, quote, like I always say, there are, there are players that play football and then there are football players. FIU wants to field the football team, but they do not really want to compete. That was followed up with uh, a... Former FIU alumni, um, uh, former he's FIU alumni, and he had a position with FIU alumni as well. Mike Hernandez on Twitter uh, responded to Butch Davis saying, "Having Butch Davis send out a, a similar note would have been classy." This is in relation to Skip Holtz's uh, his Skip Holtz's tweet about his time at Louisiana Tech. Having Butch Davis send out a similar note would have been classy, the classy thing to do. But the guy who earned five and a half million dollars over five years and hadn't coached since 2010 decided to trash the only university, giving him a shot at a return. That was followed up by Everett Withers quote tweeting Mike Hernandez's tweet saying, an athletic department, this is a quote here, an athletic department that takes the football players' cost of attendance and makes them pay for their own health insurance, question mark. The head coach uses 150K of his own money to sustain the program, question mark. Know what you're talking about before you open your mouth. Again, you can go on Twitter and see the back and forth between Mike Hernandez and Everett Withers. I won't read off the whole thing. You can continue uh to we got Everett Withers too many desk protectors at both places nine to fivers uh this was in relation to Texas State and FIU it continues the last one I'll read here Everett Withers quote tweeted a tweet from at FIU Panthers fan the tweet from is the tweet by FIU Panthers fan is is this the reason for the team's poor performance of the past two years now I'm intrigued Everett Withers said when you give the players 20 bucks on Thanksgiving morning after practice and say happy Thanksgiving and, and the next hot meals is Friday night at the team hotel on the road. You're not trying to, you're not trying to, to give you players, and you meant your players, a chance to win. This is the norm at FIU football. Said so it continues and continues. Like uh, anyone who won the smoke from Everett Withers could have got the smoke. Uh, and it's continued up into, it's now 750 on the East Coast. It's another tweet at 702, which um I won't read on the air. I'll let you read it for yourself. But uh. Yeah, certainly a lot of frustration. And to bring it all the way home, Butch Davis, when I had a chance to talk with him post-game, he he talked about it. it's been you know the most strange, disappointing, incredible years he's been a part of as a football coach. And he talked about the fact that and Butch, as I've said, you know, Butch kind of goes in different places when he's talking. So it, you know, it's hard to kind of isolate one part of his quote, but he said this whole thing started in 2018 when, you know, after winning the Bahamas Bowl, they tried to bring back the players for summer school and athletics wouldn't. And the athletic department wouldn't let players come back on campus for summer school. Um, I haven't reached out to FIU athletics for comment on that yet, but there have been some people who have said that this is a practice that stemmed back to previous years. 
Um, so there's that. But yeah, a lot of frustration and a lot of, I think to cap it, Joe, a lot of the emotion that you saw from that locker room post game, a lot of it stems from there's a belief from players and coaches in the, in this in in that locker room. And again, reach out FIU Athletics for comment. We'll see if they respond. There's a belief from a lot of those guys that the program was undermined, and the reason why they are at the point that they're at right now is because of said things. So, um, I've written a lot about it. I'd recommend you know checking out my piece in terms of. Uh, Butch Davis, you know, the amount of recruits they lost, uh, recruits that they had signed and who aren't or no longer with the program uh, from specifically the 2018 and 2019 seasons to kind of provide another side of things. Of course, Butch Davis and others would probably say a lot of the athletic deficiencies play a part in why those recruits aren't there. So uh, plenty of read if you're interested on the FIU situation as a whole. This Eddie Hondel guy on Twitter that has been pretty active in responding to, to, to Withers, is he an employee of the university in some way? Um, so Eddie Hondel, and trust me, Eddie Hondel would not care if this was in the podcast. Okay. Uh, the the Shulbo podcast that I actually do, um, his son David is is uh, one of co-hosts with me. But Eddie Hondel was, how can I describe this? He was one of the former like big wigs at FIU. He worked. I don't think he worked in the athletic department, but he was one of the people who helped get football really started at FIU um, in terms of laying the foundation. And, and I, he had some position with the. Like, you know how each team, when they're building a football program, they have people who are like, these are our, our power people in the community who are going to help get this thing off the ground. Mm-hmm. He was one of those guys. Um, but he's not an employee of FIU. Um, he, and I don't think he's been part of the alumni. I think it's with the Alumni Association in an official capacity. I don't think he's been there since like 2013. He had a falling out with Pete, and, and that is that. But uh, yeah, that's, that's who Eddie Honnold is. And still very much beloved by any FIU fans. I mean, he's got the nickname Papa Panther. Like I, everyone knows Eddie Hondo. Gotcha. I was, I was just curious because uh, you know, he has had, he's been a definitely a, a contributor to that online conversation. If you have the <laughs> attention span and you're something of a masochist and really want to dive into this, uh, he's, you know, obviously has kind of some knowledge of the inner workings there and has been very critical of FIU's coaching staff. So that's, that's just another piece and another perspective, I guess. I really have no, take one way or the other but it's fascinating to watch just everything that's gone on with this program and you know i I know a lot of people are just anxious to move on and kind of see you know what the next step for this program is both in terms of finding an ad that's you know gonna do things right and you know uh and and a head coach that um can you know hopefully kind of get you know things back to where they were in the early days of um of Butch Davis's tenure. Um, but that being said, it's fascinating to see what has, what has happened to FIU athletics over the past, uh, couple of weeks. And again, there, there's certain stuff that we're just not going to talk about because we don't have all the information. We don't have all the facts, but oh, I don't know, man. Like some people ha- are like, some people can watch those, like, you know, FIU athletics. They're not the first company brand, sports organization whatever to have a public falling out like this but it's exhausting to watch and it, it never gets any easier for me some people can like hate watch that type of stuff and I, I i just can't do it man and maybe that has something to do with you know 10 years working in sports <laughs> and just being just being tired of, of grown men and women acting like children but i don't know that's just me it's it's been a lot i mean you know people have grievances and i i <laughs> It's been a lot. I'll just leave it at that. It's been a lot, and it, it it will continue to be a lot until 
a new AD is hired, a new head coach is hired. And, you know, that's, that's when I think the page will turn, but it's a long time between now and then in terms of, um, next season and when the se- and things can change. I think you know, we'll get an AD hire and a head coaching hire uh within the next seven days. Was it AD hire within the next seven to ten days, my belief, in terms of sources, and then head coaching will follow. But until next season kicks off, uh, it, this is going to be in the news cycle. I think on that note, we can dive into uh the part of the podcast that I'm assuming most people are tuning in for. The CUSA championship game this Friday, December 3rd, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central Time on CBS Sports Network. UTSA hosting Western Kentucky, Western Kentucky minus one in this game. Eric, I am so interested to see what happens here. On the one hand, UTSA has the victory against WKU from earlier in the year when the runners won 52 to 46. On the other hand, UTSA is coming off of a bad performance of their own against North Texas this past week. So Western Kentucky had a really bad half, uh, bad first half against Marshall, though they did seem to pull it together in the second half. Personally, I think we're going to see a really similar game to what we saw in the tops and the runners first meeting this year. Zappy was really on in that game through five touchdowns and one interception. Uh, But then on the other side, you saw Frank Harris who threw six touchdowns. So he's also obviously going to be on his a game in, in this one. I think, I think the good news for UTSA is while they haven't been great at defending the run the last three weeks, the run has not been Western Kentucky's strong suit at any point this season. So Ultimately, I think for Western, the key for them is to, I mean, play a complete game for all of the things that we've really, you know, uh, talked about in terms of how well this offense performs. The games that have been losses for them and and the games that have been, you know, uh, frustratingly close, I think some fans would say, um, have been due to just bad starts. You know, I mean, even going back to like, all the way back to when they played UT Martin in the opening week of the season, they had some, you know, really frustrating issues in that first quarter before they really started rolling Um, for this one. Ultimately, if I have to make a pick, I have a stronger gut feeling about UTSA because I find it really hard to believe they came all this way and had all this success and gave Jeff trailer a 10 year extension. And, you know, Frank Harris came back from his injury you know, sincere McCormick won all these awards just to crap out at the end of the season and finish 11 and two with just a divisional title. That's just me. I think this is going to be a really, really great game. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm giddy like a little kid. The fact that COSA has given us so many great games the last couple of weeks. And I think this is going to be another one. Joe, you and I both are very pumped up, very excited about this game for all of the things that this season has been. We've talked about the teams that have surprised, the teams that have disappointed. And we've seen our fair share of games that were blowouts and others, especially me, unfortunately, you know, even covered FIU. I am so looking forward to this game. Just the way that things played out the last time time these two teams met. And as I talked about in the earlier section, with how well Western is playing, just the, they're really firing on all cylinders at least offensively and defensively, you know, I wouldn't say firing all cylinders, but they're playing a better brand of defensive football than they were during the first few weeks. I just think we are Joe in my mind. And I left out, you know, conference realignment, all the things, the headlines that that's been right. And wondering what this conference is going to be. I think this, uh, this Friday, excuse me, the Ryan CUSA conference title game on a Friday 
will this be an opportunity to just to showcase the best talent in this league, the top two teams from east to west? And I genuinely think we're being for a hell of a ball game. Joe, I don't know about you, but I love these games, right? When you got a high-powered offense versus, you know, a defense, while UTSA hasn't played great the past few weeks. They've been a – certainly have plenty of talent, especially in the secondary. Just, again, really giddy about this game, and I think it would be great on Friday night. Kind of, Almost kind of wish I was going to be there live or covering it, but I will certainly will uh, enjoy it Friday night with, you know, I think a well-deserved beer and, and some wings. Same, man. Like, uh, I mean, I, you know what? I was going to say we don't have any good wing joints in Portland, but that's not, that's not the case. Um, Fire on the Mountain is delicious. Eric, there's this place in Buffalo, New York that's credited as the like inventor of Buffalo Wings. I believe it's called the Anchor Bar. And basically, this bar in Buffalo, New York has been passed down through generations through generations since like the 60s or 70s. Um, that being said, they had like a weird cousin that lived in the basement. He moved to Portland, Oregon and started his own place. And that's what Fire on the Mountain is, which is basically the most Portland thing I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can't can't anything more to that that definitely is very portland all right excited to see um how the cusa championship game plays out uh and then obviously we have middle tennessee already slated for the bahamas bowl on december 17th we'll talk about that probably in the next episode along with uh, any other bowl confirmations that come in in the next uh you know few weeks here um but we'll be back next week uh to talk about any new news, uh, any transfers that get confirmed. And um, we'll, we'll end the podcast on this. Uh, Pete Thamel reporting LSU is expected to hire Notre Dame's Brian Kelly as the school's next head coach. An announcement what? could come as early as tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know what the hell that's about, but <laughs> I mean, okay, we'll see. Uh, happy football, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. 